0: You are listening to Dialogue, Dialogue City. City. Find us on Twitter, Medium, and Facebook at Dialogue, Dialogue City. City. Look for
1: us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and any other podcasting streaming services you might be using.
0: Dialogue, Dialogue City. City is recorded in Mokinstus in Treaty 7 territory. I'm Grant Newfeld. I'm Jeremy Zhao. And with us today are...
2: Lisa Lorenzetti. Nyaboy Gadbell. I so, Dara.
0: so the first question I'll throw out To just sort of get things rolling Is what's something you wish everybody in the world knew? Any takers?
3: How to get along
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and what would that look like?
3: I don't know We're so at odds with each other We're scared of the unknown So if we can get along and just get to know one another I think that would be a great start I like what
4: Agnes uh, has said and I was reading recently this book called Deep Diversity uh, written by a Canadian activist, uh, educator it's talking about some of the deep-seated fears that we have of unknown and differences and how that plays out in some of our work and also some of the The solutions moving forward that we're proposing and how to really uh, deepen our our togetherness or sense of connectedness you had talked earlier now boy about how you're a human being first and so it's a great way to introduce oneself and the idea that that's a starting point and it's also a togetherness among all of us
2: thank you for saying that what I would like everybody to know is that everything we have is a construct right nothing is real how we perceive reality how we otherize other people is because of our limited knowledge of self and the world. And so with that, the starting point of everything should be that we are human first and everything else is whatever we want to make it to be. And so I would want people not to be, to be caught up in things like race and gender and socioeconomic status and education, you name it, like things that are like we made as a form of measurement of human progress. I feel like we we should not hold ourselves to that standard. Just kind of live as a person and figure out how you want to experience your own humanity. Just understand that the mind is so powerful. Like if we can use the mind to construct things and devices to hurt ourselves, we can use it to restructure and deconstruct the realities that are hurting us right now.
0: So what are some of those realities that you see hurting us?
2: Um, For example, race. Racism. I come from an indigenous community that we pre predate race. We were here before, even before race was a thing. But you have us struggling in North American society, Australian society, grappling with this identity like I'm black and we're having a hard time with that when in reality, we existed before that concept was even around. So how is something like that not becoming something so innate? And I would like my people to understand and everybody else that just because you have more melanin or you have less pigmentation doesn't make you anything great, really. Um, I think how we adapt it to our social environment is really not that big of a deal. It's just that's how nature goes, and so I think that if we can see race really, really as a construct and not something innate, I feel like we can really we can heal like half of the planet. I think
4: those are good perspectives. I really appreciate what you had to say.
2: I think a lot of the
4: concepts that We see people in political circles clinging on to, like race or gender, uh, abilities, etc. They're being questioned. They're they're constantly being questioned and deconstructed. And I think there are groups of people that are clinging on to these concepts, uh, and they're clinging on to them using violence and force. uh, And it seems that the more that that the reality of these as being, what is it called, unstable rhetorical concepts the more that some people are trying to glue them together as being real, right? Like this really exists. And I was thinking a lot about we're doing some work around um, gender identity. and We're going to be doing some workshops in solidarity with the trans community coming up. And the idea that gender is being completely deconstructed. And I think it's great. And I, in my role as a mom, I have ever since my... Child was quite young. We were deconstructing things like through gender, we call them gender boxes. And so, we started very young uh, talking about these boxes and how she didn't necessarily need to belong. And so, sometimes she defines herself as she, sometimes she'll define herself as he or they, and then sometimes she accuses me of being in a gender box, which she busts me all the time actually <laughs> and says, I'm doing something or why do you need to do that? It's very gender. So, I think that it's also how we how we bring up the next generation and what our commitment is to... Like, are we going to cling on to those those tired, old, power-over concepts like racism or white privilege? Or are we going to give our next generations a gift? Uh, the big gift is not to even understand why anyone would buy into that, right? That's a great gift, that gift of a different slate of thinking, so... Yes, I'm working on that. I think that's my most important role, I would say, right now.
1: Maybe I'll throw something out there for everybody because everybody, I think, in this room, minus myself, is very familiar with a lot of the concepts that we're talking about right now, trying to deconstruct it, trying to get away from things like race or gender or what have you. In the world that I'm in, however, it's the complete opposite, right? Like, uh, growing up in, in my family being Chinese that is the identity that is the, the cohesive bond I guess that what's a good word It it, it it's like the reason for being mm-hmm. is being Chinese and I work mm-hmm. in an oil and gas industry where you know the, the treatment of women the, how women are looked at in the industry is still very very far behind and for me to be in this space right now in this circle talking about these things like i understand where i'm coming from and i understand where everybody else is coming from but it's very hard for me to reconcile how do i reach out to my colleagues mm-hmm. and my superiors or my my immediate friends and we, how do we talk about these issues because we're i'm not even myself included and my immediate friends we're not there yet we're not even close to there in terms of the topics that we're talking about right now. So I, I, I want to hear what, I guess, each individual has to say about that and how we can move forward. Because we, we talk about how we want to approach that end goal, but I, I'm not even You
2: want the process.
1: It. Yeah, I want to know what the process looks like. and But I'm, in, I'm living in an environment, in a world where we're not even close to there yet.
2: I think your question earlier, um, you can repeat it.
0: The the one about What's something you want everybody to know
2: Yeah and I think Because we had that conversation How you were saying like like education, I think creating positive spaces in works in work in workplaces, right? And I think it has to start at like kindergarten level until like they are dead, okay? So that should be a part of the culture where we have positive spaces to come to to deconstruct whatever we're going through. Like it has to be part of life. It has to be part of the work culture. It has it's kind of already part of education. Like if, like you know you have therapy and things like that. So I think when it comes to things like oil and gas. It's not the only industry that's problematic, but it's just that that's that that space where everybody can go and feel not judged and really vent is not there. So I think maybe that's the first step is to introduce that space there and then kind of allow, allow things to unfold on their own.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's just my opinion.
0: I think we're seeing, and maybe this happens with every generation, but I think we're seeing a substantial change in the children coming up now part of it may be the existential crisis they face where the extinction of our species is on the immediate horizon with environmental collapse there's some significant pressure there that previous generations have not faced but we're seeing a radical move away from traditional gender roles but perhaps that's just because that's from our perspective because the generations say in the 60s who saw a radical change in gender roles at that time. In the 70s, there was a radical change. In the 80s, not so much, because that's more when the backlash against Mm -hmm. feminism started to come in. To me, I I do have a sense that that there is a significant generational shift occurring. Whether it will succeed or not remains to be seen.
4: I'm going to just respond a little bit more to Jeremy, because I was thinking that in social work, where I do a lot of my things, we oftentimes say, you know, how do we get these ideas into the corporate sector? There's like a sector out there that's not made we think or maybe we surmise is not having those conversations in the same way, although perhaps they are. Perhaps there's, there's different things happening that, that I know about. But So that's always a challenge. The challenge is how to expand the conversation from what we call the choir, like the converged or those who are on that path. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily that happens also within the fields of social work too we have lots of, and Agnes will probably concur lots of conflicts we're a, you know a microcosm of the society which is full of power over dynamics but I think if we look at diversity in its true sense, I hate to say the word true because someone <laughs> will say something about that, but if we look at it from an ecological and biological perspective, diversity exists everywhere And it's not a problem necessarily. The problem is actually when certain species overtake others and smother them out. It's also a problem when we look, when we define diversity in the sense of social differentiation, which means some diversity is better and some is worse. So our problem really isn't difference. Our problem is how we label difference. And so I think I don't know if we need to go back so your question, your first question what do people need to know I wonder how much we understand our ecology and how we're living here and how we're just one species in this whole big thing and, and I think that if we taught our children to understand ecological diversity and biological diversity aside from our human lens to define it and also put it in boxes I wonder if that would help us I don't know what others think about that
2: no, that's um that's really a good thing to say because when I was in grade nine, my teacher for science he was Métis. With I, I to me at that point at that time period it was important to have someone of a different background uh, teaching, and I asked him like you know why was I black and he just explained to me what melanin was and the pros and cons and. Like, I just have more than other people. So at nine years old, I just have more melanin than other people. So when I experienced racing from that point, it was like you're ignorant because I just have more melanin than you. So, But that was just something that my ninth grade teacher was just saying in a moment. Like, he didn't think it would impact my life. From that understanding, I have realized, like, we don't really understand the human the human race like from a biological, even scientific, but we just don't get it. We don't, we don't understand that we cannot accept the diversity in plants and flowers and everything else but somehow we want to be the same blob as humans like the same diversity is going to exist within us as well because we are part of nature and we are in different parts of the planet and we're going to and we're going to mutate and adapt to our environment so once i feel like once you teach people that you realize we create things like race or to try to Understand a reality that we might not have a language for yet, and so once you understand that, that concept came out of ignorance of people that were scared to death about maybe their own existence. Then you won't be you want you won't take it personally when someone is racist. You understand like you've been conditioned in a certain way for it to, for you to act a certain way. So when I respond to you, I'm actually responding to your conditioning. You might have been a very very different person if you were not conditioned in that way.
1: In one of our podcast episodes, we talked about because i'm an engineer we talked about how when i went through university all i ever learned were just subjects related to engineering there is nothing beyond the science of what my profession was and that to me maybe goes back to your point where maybe people just never had that opportunity or was never given that opportunity in the course of their career or the course of their post-secondary to understand some of these mm-hmm. subjects. I, I don't know if that... To,
2: to me, teachers are so influential. They're underpaid, but they're so influential. Mm-hmm. So I remember in when I first started university, it was at Marlboro Fright, I transferred to USC, and I wrote a paper about um, Sudanese tribalism, because at the time, it was like 2014, the conflict, etc. Kind of happened, right? And I remember, I wrote the paper, we had the conversation in Africa, he right? read like, you know, you think African tribalism is bad? Study white tribalism, like, study study ancient European societies, understand that, study, you understand we're not, we're going through the same thing, but we 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 have nations now, so we have political correctness. Like, look, we'll, like when I look at like the situation in like, is it crime Crimea? Crimea? I'm like, that's that's tribalism, you know, because you have two 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 separate nations fighting for a land between them when they're not even that different from each other, ethnicity wise. And then you look at like South Sudan and North Sudan, they're fighting over IBA. Like, and I'm like, we're going through the same thing, but how we how we define it. it, it And the power behind the definition of what's powering it, it's it's what makes a difference. So I think once we understand that we are all experiencing the same things, but we give it different names and different meanings. Like water to me is pew. To a Dinka person is is, is a pew. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like we're saying the same thing, we're experiencing the same thing, but how we interpret that experience is different. So I honestly feel like that biological reality of, like, really, really understanding, like, just our makeup as human being and appreciating the diversity that's there, I feel like if we start at a, at a kindergarten level and make it part of life, because can, you can never learn too much of one thing, it would really lessen the ignorance and you would have more information at hand to understand, like, this is why you have less melanin. and this is why you have more. Once you understand that from nature's perspective, you realize I'm actually okay the way I am. Like, I'm supposed to be this way and nothing is wrong. And everybody could have a good life. I honestly feel like it's a, it's a lack of information and lack of being conditioned correctly. So we're going to be conditioned regardless. We might we might as well get the right conditioning from the start. Mm.
4: Building on what you just said, Nia Boy, and also your comments, I was just thinking about my role as a teacher in this university setting and for me one of the key things that's lacking is teaching to critically think so like what we call a liberatory pedagogy or critical liberatory pedagogy and so what does that mean for me in my classes there's lots of debate and people can disagree so i lay out my views pretty straightforward right this is sort of how i view things this is my take on things and so people are not graded based on agreeing with me or submitting something that's pleasing but they need to critically think about what they're saying and why back to the community work that we're doing some of the things around for instance we always focus in social work. For years and years, we focus on issues like poverty. For example, we're really focused on poverty, but we don't focus on wealth. We don't focus on uh, wealth inequality, and we don't focus, we focus on racism, we don't focus on whiteness, and we don't focus on heteronormativity. So we're still focusing on othering people, and then never taking a look at oneself as the privileged entity, right? One of the decolonizing feminist uh, Mohanty said, under the Western gaze. So there's always a Western gaze looking out upon something and defining it, right? And so I think that uh, critical thinking for me is that we shift the gaze onto ourselves. And particularly if you're in a position of dominance, right? You're talking about a lot of dominance. Having like People are just learning subjects by experts. So there's an expert, there's a subject, and there's an imparting of knowledge. Yes. Like, a, what do they call that? The banking education model. They just put the coins in and you know nothing. You're just accepting those coins as taken for granted. And so I think that, for me, that the critical pedagogy is also something that isn't the role necessarily of an institutional educator like myself it's actually all of our roles to do that like with our kids or people that we have anybody that we have influence over the teaching to critically think because then we're not just going to take anything that's dished out to us we're not going to take it as truth like you were talking about your teacher right your teacher totally deconstructed something that was being imposed upon you and deconstructed it so you could critically think about it in a different way like it was a great example like that's so transformative that changes that can change us for you know in a totally different path
0: when i was first being exposed to television my mom would sit beside me and as we we're watching the show she'd periodically turned to me and asked me something, you know, like, Well, oh, why do you think he did that? Or do you think that was a good idea? Or any kinds of questions, so that rather than just sort of passively sitting there accepting the feed of mm-hmm. of the television, I was being taught at like age three or four or whatever, to question at every point, which has been a tremendous gift. Mm-hmm. And she's had regrets about it because I question her all the time, but... Yeah. Of course she does. <laughs> yeah, the the best and worst thing that can happen to a parent is that your kids actually listen to you and, and mm-hmm. learn from you. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and then do their own thing. Yes. Which you try to say they should do, and then they go and do it. Then you need to live with that, right? <laughs> Agnes and I were talking about that.
0: Right, so... One of the most dangerous concepts that humans have ever come up with is other. This notion that we are somehow separate, completely independent entities. The hyper-individualism that dominates the society we live in. This notion that you all are different people separate from me. You are other. And it's in that space that we define other. In the space that we create this artificial separation that all forms of oppression are able to emerge. If there is no other, if we are just self, and by we I mean this whole planet, not just the humans, mm-hmm. if we are self, if we are a living system, just as the cells and organs that make up this body that we call me are a system together, the individual cells, the individual organs aren't other to each other. Mm-hmm. If they were, I would die. Yeah, -hmm. Yeah, true. So, similarly, the components that make up the living system that is this planet, we're not really other. We manufacture this idea of other. We have this received wisdom that we are somehow separate and apart and therefore have no responsibility to each other and don't have to be affected by what happens to each other. And in that space of other... We create oppression.
2: Yeah, I, I think we innately know that we're somehow the same. That's why, like, when we do things like war or genocide, we have to other the other person to to, to an extreme that I can be detached from you and forget your humanity. Otherwise, if you truly were an other, there would be no point in othering you, right? Maybe we do know at some level that we are all human, so I have to practice the art of othering to get my point across or to achieve my objective. Otherwise, you're just really other. I don't have to go through so many steps to other you. It means every step of the way I am removing whatever humanity that is there. So when I do what I do... I was watching a documentary, and they were talking about how they... They killed and dismembered Patrice Lumumba, who was the Congolese leader, revolutionary leader. The Belgians didn't want him alive, and so you know they sent people after him and whatnot. And the way that the men were, the people who actually did the killing, the way that they were describing how they cut him to pieces, and, and. and I knew that they have totally, like, removed his humanity. There's no way on earth you can sit in front of a camera in your 80s and 90s talking about, oh man, we did this, we put acid on him. It's like, you totally, like, there's no humanity there. You you removed it. And I know that somewhere deep down they know they did something bad. But they had to others so much that they can say it the way they did in the documentary. I feel like a lot of things that humans do are out of desperation and they need to survive for something. They want money. They want power. And what I realized is that we know the transatlantic slave trade with the, the Americas, but we never talk about the Arabian slave trade and what that did to Europe and what that did to Africa. And once I le- I didn't learn a lot. But when I learned a little bit about what ancient European society went through under the Arab and Jewish slave trade, I realized they were powerless at one point. In that state of powerlessness, they never want to be there ever again. So it's like a cycle. I'm powerless today. Tomorrow I want to have power. You know, I just realized humans just, they know they know what being the other is like. They know what not having power is like. All of these othering things that we do to each other, when you look at the history, it's like it's the same thing, just passed on to a different group at a different time period.
0: Well, we start people off with that at the earliest age because we treat children as not fully human.
2: Yeah.
0: Children are possessions of their parents and yes,
2: yeah.
0: are required to obey. And if the parents are disappointed in the in the children, that's a terrible thing. And that dehumanizing starts right at infancy. Yes. And so, as you say, you know, people learn what it's like to be powerless in a, in a structure where power over is dominant. And so they become focused on getting to that position of power over so they're no longer in the position of of being oppressed, of being down. Top. But what is lost in that is that it's the system of having power over at all that is the problem. Yes. When we create these artificial hierarchies of here's our king or emperor or president or boss, whatever, when we create those systems of, of authority over, that harms us. And so rather than saying, okay, I've, I've been dehumanized and oppressed as a child, and now when I grow up I'm going to be an oppressive adult, to say, no, let's get rid of the practice of oppression. But we're, we're a bit of a ways off from that as a society.
4: But it's hard to do because, yeah, the first idea is who's us and who's them. And so we're out to protect whoever we define as us. And it's this very unstable and changing category, in fact, uh, although we don't admit it. And so I was just thinking about activities sometimes that I like to lead where people are given monetary value to the these random pieces of paper that they have and so you share the pieces of paper and and they just have nice colors and then the people that end up with purple end up to be wealthy and those with green end up you know to get thrown out of the room and the people with purple get to make the decisions for the people with green and I played this game a lot in a lot of the uh, classes and activities I run in the community and it's amazing and actually frightening how everybody knows exactly what to do those with the green papers know they better head out the Mm -hmm. door and when they're told to leave they leave and then those with purple even social workers we have a something called social justice profession which is supposed to be us they sit around plotting what's going to happen with the ones (laughs) with the green and no one stops it no one stops it so These three, four people who really may have not had any relationship with each other are all of a sudden the purple holders. So that's how banal and ridiculous it is, in fact. I mean, we're talking about the larger constructs, right, of abilities or or gender or race, but even the purple papers matter that much, that they're so insignificant. And, And whenever we debrief this activity we're all shocked about how we played the game, right? And so I thought, okay, so what's the alternative game, right? Do we know what that game looks like? Do we know how to play it? We're often accused as social activists, we don't have an agenda, we don't know what to do, we don't know what we're proposing, yeah. right? But we know the game of dominance really well because we've been playing it our whole lives, all of us, even those who are trying not to play, you right. play it yeah. uh, when you can and so I just wonder about the alternative games, and so that was a question that I often ask: when can somebody come up with the alternative game? Can we start to learn this game? And well, kids like games, and so can we start young? Do we know how to play that different game?"
0: There's been some really interesting development in game design, and you know, whether board games mm, or card yeah. games or video games, around cooperative games. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites is called Pandemic, where you're sitting around as, as a group of players and you're not in opposition with each other you're trying to figure out how you can best collaborate to stop the spread of global pandemic of disease on this board game and the board itself at, a, at first glance may think oh this kind of looks a bit like risk the ultimate in competitive game for board games you're not competing against each other you're competing against the disease if you're competing against it you're competing to find the optimal collaboration there are some promising things in, in that way because the early cooperative games like in the 70s and 80s, I remember some of those, were not that fun. You know, people were trying to, trying to yeah. you know, follow the principle. But, you know, let's, they're, they're instead of not. competing against each other, let's... <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah. pandemic is actually fun and people get excited playing it. And there are some other cooperative games that have come out in that vein. I think, too, the, the thing of how easily people break into groups of affinity even around something as simple as you happen to be holding a piece of purple paper that is that is a fundamental human trait i was just listening past couple days to my favorite podcast, which isn't Dialogue City it's (laughs) it's a podcast called You Are Not So Smart, which looks at the ways that humans do not think rationally. Cognitive bias, logical fallacies self-delusion, and their most recent episode that I'm listening to is on tribalism, the way humans Mm -hmm. form into competing groups where you have an in-group and an out-group the research that has found it is so incredibly easy as your experience has shown it's so incredibly easy to turn people into divided groups and so the challenge for us as a species where we're no longer in a physical environment context where tribalism is useful because it was useful when humans were first evolving because you would form this tribal group and the out group was more likely to be the beasts that you were competing for food with in, mm-hmm. in the territory, were right? not so much other people because you had to rely on people and there weren't tons of people around. But now that there are tons of people around, there's, there's an abundance of humans, the divisions that tribalism leads us to are not functional. They're not useful. Just like the way we evolved to crave sugar was useful when sugar was scarce. So we'd gorge on it when we'd come across a patch of berries, fill up our, our fatty cells with that, so that when we went for a couple months without access to any, we had some stored up in our body to, so we could survive. But now, sugar is so abundant that we have obesity as a problem. Similarly, the way we evolved tribalism in it as, as a tendency is no longer effective in, in the environment we're in. So how do we counter that? And I don't have a good answer to that.
2: Maybe having an abundant mindset. Because I think what, what what, what drives a lot of this is the idea that there isn't enough to go around. And I think we don't understand that the earth has plenty for all of us. But if we don't stop our greed, then like we're all going to suffer like what you were saying earlier that we should see like obviously we should see each other as one I think human beings are just I don't know they're just selfish like the things that they do it's like you're not more important than a whale or the dolphin you're not more important than the plankton and the seaweed and you're not more important than the, the grass Even though you step on grass like you're not that important like there are other things working within your environment to make sure that you stay alive <laughs>
0: Is the spleen more important than the liver?
2: <laughs> exactly. We
0: can't live without that.
2: Everything life. works in nature so we can breathe oxygen and so we can we can be alive, but we do nothing in return for them to be alive, for them to be safe. So it's kind of like we're just like ungrateful people on here, on, on this planet. It's like everything on Earth, the atmosphere, everything is working to make sure that we're okay. And then we just rape the Earth instead of its resources and... Everything that she offers, just want to take it and not give anything back to make sure she regrows. Like, nope, I'll have all the lumber I want and I'm not gonna plant any more trees. So it's just like this ungratefulness, this greed. All we have is look around us, everything else cooperates. It's not like it's not foreign to us. But I think the big question is because people think if we're over egalitarian, am I gonna have enough? Am I gonna have everything I need? They think by being heavily individualistic that they're gonna have what they need, but they don't know that they're depriving themselves of a lot more by being self-centered and greedy. So I feel like nature already shows us what egalitarian looks like and what cooperation looks like. It's a matter of like, what are we willing to give up to have like an egalitarian, peaceful world? Like, we have to sacrifice something. And those are like very, the toxic ways that have benefited mankind in the wrong direction. Like, are we willing to give? Are we willing to give them up? This idea of governance. I'm not cattle. Like, why? It's you know that idea that there's some guy sitting in a chair with other people deciding my fate is like. Is it, it, a country another form of a slaughterhouse that I don't like? You know, is <laughs> there's so many things that we have to get rid of. We really, really, really want to have this egalitarian world.
1: I think
4: that we really focus on we're talking about people are worried about what will be left so you see like a lot of this resurgence of sort of brutal display of white power that's happening around North America and and Europe in particular but everywhere but those societies that have a lot of white people in it sort of this stamp of demand of holding on to something that they're thinking that is going to go somewhere. It's so damaging, right? And they're trying to reinstate uh, colonial rule, right, which yeah. impacts the world. There's some deep-seated fears, whatever they call the white fragility, of people that are supporting that. It's interesting because there's so much actually to be gained rather than to lose in a more egalitarian collective-based societies. And I don't think people are talking about that. I think that people like myself, as a white anti-racist activist, you're pushing back on the line of dealing with other white people's stuff all the time. (laughs) But the idea is, it's not actually about how inappropriate that is or how ancient that is of thinking and how the world so moved beyond that ideology, but actually it's more about what... Is being missed with that ideology. I was in Austria some time ago and they had this amazing tribute to looking at the impacts of anti-Semitism in Europe and in Austria you know there was over 700,000 volunteers for the Nazi regime you know in Austria and this Type of ideology persists. In fact, they just voted somebody in. whose neo Nazis are being, you know, gathering their their supporters in Europe, in Austria, particularly. But this exhibit, I really appreciated it because it didn't. Although it's important to focus on the losses and what happened, and etc. It didn't focus on that. What it did is it focused on all these amazing, talented people that fled Austria because of. The Nazi, Nazi ideology, and the white nationalism, and all of this stuff, and they did amazing stuff: opera singers, writers, painters, lawyers, uh, people who discovered stuff. You know, most of them were Jewish, and they contributed. All kinds of amazing things all over the world that didn't happen in Austria because Austria drove people out if they you know aside from the killing. So I I really appreciate that exhibit stuck with me beyond many other things that and you know I've studied a lot on on oppression and, and genocides across the globe and that stuck with me because I thought they were giving a big lesson to the populace. Look what you lost.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Look at the richness. Look at the fantastic skills we have among us that you, because of your close-minded, uh, violent, systemic violent ideology, you lost out. So I like the idea. I like the idea of bringing that idea further, more in our work. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, how we can do this collectively, but I really
0: thought it was important. Yeah, abundance thinking, getting over the scarcity of thinking, this idea of, to use the, the metaphor of, of the pie, and people are so used to thinking of, I want to get a bigger piece of the pie, rather than thinking, if instead of trying to push people out of the way so that you get your bigger piece, we work together, there's a much bigger pie, mm-hmm. and everybody mm-hmm. gets a lot more. You could have the biggest piece of, of a small pie, it'll still be smaller than you're the same-as-everybody-else piece of a really big pie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you genuinely want more, collaboration Mm and cooperation is the way to get there. The the research has been done in in game theory around around this. You know, there's the classic game theory thing, which is only a small part of it, but the the prisoner's dilemma, where do you betray your fellow prisoner or do you collaborate with Mm -hmm. them? And what's found in through a variety of these scenarios and models that they run is that cooperation is the winning model. Yeah. Everybody gets more that way.
4: Mm. Even the pie's better. I mean, when you think about yeah. it, it's not even just about more, it's about a better pie. Yes. Yeah. Right? The pie is tastier, it's more wonderful, it's got, you know, right? it's better spices. Yeah, the pie is just better. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just stay
0: with, I feel like eating pie right now. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Pie City. <laughs> Please bring a piece of pie to our podcast. I'll get
1: things done. I think that's a good yeah. idea.
0: To kind of wrap things up, what I like to do is ask people, we do a go-around and say, what is something either from the discussion that was a key point that you really want to emphasize or... A question that arises for you out of this that you don't necessarily have an answer for but that you're thinking about now or something that we didn't say in the discussion that you want to bring forward i'll start off usually i make jeremy start but i'll i'll start off this time for me this whole thing of countering The dominant thinking which has us in this scarcity mindset uh, the need to be the one on top as the way to be in this society that getting people to see abundance as the reality of our existence and to value the quality as Lisa was saying that you can get through bringing everybody in I guess the question I have is how do we get that thinking to all these people who are we're largely trapped by how they've been enculturated, how they've been raised in this society.
4: You know, I'm interested in how the winner success model can be deconstructed in a really profound way. And we see it everywhere there's winners and losers, and that's how we live our, our world. You can't blame anyone for not wanting to be the loser. Right, when they get a chance they're gonna try to be the winner too, even if it's like morally or, or ethically wrong. I think it's quite a deep, deep lessons and so I'm I'm interested in knowing or talking to other people who are parents and guardians who are working to oppose that pervasive model that's everywhere that makes the collectivist games boring to my younger daughter and the win-lose games exciting. So I'm interested in in other people's takes on on that because I think that's where it needs to, at least one of the entry points to the change we're looking for.
1: For myself, uh, Lisa, your point about critical thinking... It's so obvious but I haven't thought about it in a while because I've been through institutions where it's only like, here you go, here's the information. We've always done it this way. We've always thought about a certain idea one way. There's no room for any other points of discussion because, unfortunately, the, the industry, it's driven by money. It's not driven by, hey, you know, did we think about, you know, That poor farmer and what's going to happen to their fields What we never, the whole thing about the First Nations, like, now maybe we should have thought it, I don't know, maybe a hundred years ago when we first started developing this resource all these things we just don't get exposed to it you know, maybe that's that's my ignorance or or my industry saying we just simply were not taught about it or we didn't discuss about it, whether it was in school, whether it was in the workplace whether it was in I don't know even just simple discussions between friends and and family that critical thinking is is sorely lacking unfortunately in the engineering world and I think that something needs to be changed there and i don't I don't know how to do it but i, I, I at least i I hope I at least recognize the problem of the the lacking of that critical thinking so
2: thank you jeremy that was that was good what you said what I like learned from this is that. I think we have to do the opposite of what's existing right now. So where everybody else may be promoting division and tribalism and encouraging genocide against other groups, I think for those of us who really, truly want the opposite world, we really have to live and breathe it. We have to first embody that world. That's the first step. It's like we have to be the change. I guess we want to see. And for me, on a personal, what I'm going to do is I... Science is not perfect. Don't get me wrong. But I love the sciences. And I want to just, like, get people to see how at a cellular level we're the same and how... We take what's natural and we otherize it, just, just just, showing people. And in this case, I would start with my own community, the community, just kind of showing people that at the genetic level, we're the same people, but how mm-hmm. we choose to experience culture and tradition, that's up to us. Those are social constructs, but you cannot, your DNA isn't, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But how you experience things beyond your DNA, that's up to you. You decide. And so just introducing things like epigenetics and how your cell store, stores trauma and all these things. And just making people aware of how when we're divisive and toxic and tribal and whatever, all this negativity that we think is going to hurt another human being, we are the first one to get attacked ourselves are the first to get attacked by our own negative thinking, which we have been conditioned. So just kind of showing people that everything you say and do unto others has already been done to you first. And if you really love yourself, then you got to re-examine how you do things. And I think the way that I'm going to do it is that, you know, creating... This creating positive space, like I have a project called Paramount Maternity Center, right? And the whole idea behind that is to create positive spaces where people of refugee background understand how to unpack the trauma, how to decolonize their healing, and how to decolonize their minds. Because even after we left the refugee camps in Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, Egypt, that trauma traveled everywhere with us in the west it, it get passed down to our kids but we don't know that because we don't have that information and, and I feel like especially in, in Calgary I feel like we have a lot of professionals here who know about that type of stuff even introducing the people to that and saying like hey there's a different reality beyond the pain so that's kind of where my mind is and then my other friends from other communities it's the same idea we're unpacking race and gender and all these things just like making it a fun thing and just having creating a positive space because I want to exist in a world where like I said before I'm human first everything else is secondary again so what I can do in my part is just help being like inviting that change first and then creating positive spaces to make it fun for little kids and older adults and immigrants or whatever the case may be just making it a fun thing and like what you're saying, like we we do things, we car, compartmentalize things, we make them like this, this, that. But I feel like engineering, mathematics, sociology, art, everything, everything works the, the same. So when I look at a building, I see the teamwork. I see that we're complementing nature. Cause that's what we are. Like different components come together to make a beautiful whole. So when I look at like our industry, we can actually work together to build a really healthy society. let's say we had a maternity clinic, the engineers can bring in like uh, solar paneled energy things. You know what I mean? So then it's like you're you're still respecting the environment but you're using you're utilizing technology to, to bring about healthy energy. So in my mind at this point in life everything works together for the benefit of the whole and it's to just get people to see like we can actually use our technology, we can actually use our culture and education for the benefit of all of us, but they kind of have to see like a a physical manifestation of that. Well, I've
3: enjoyed listening to everyone. (laughs) 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 It's kind of been quiet here, but um, just off of what everyone has been saying, I, I was thinking about how we've kind of come so far that we've detached from our humanity as everyone was saying before. And so I'm thinking... Somehow we need to go back into the past and see the missteps, as Lisa was saying earlier, um, kind of see what we have done in the past and move forward with that. Because before capitalism in itself, which is driving the me, 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 me notion, there was a lot more of the collective societies where we work together, we hunt together, we we gather together, all those sort of things. If we can look at how different societies we're able to coexist and and work together, maybe take that and move forward with it and kind of integrate it into society now instead of always thinking that I have to get the materials first. I mean, we're always going to have those individuals that want the most at the top, and we're always going to have those people that want to drive fear into uh, society and stuff. But if we can start looking at... The past and what the ancients have done, because there is a lot of value in looking in the past. Like, for example, when we talk about the indigenous ways uh, of knowing, in one of our courses last semester, I learned that when it comes to the justice system, we're so. We want to punish you for what you've done instead of looking at the rehabilitation aspect of, of life, right? And when it comes to the First Nations, Métis, the way they practice is that, okay, say if you go and you break someone's window, then you have to go and work with that individual to make it right. So if you have to work off your debt to that person, then that will be your way, but we're not going to punish you for what you've done because that results in nothing. That's one of the things that I've learned. So I think we can benefit a lot from looking at the past and ways of doing things like the example that I made. So, yeah.
0: Well, thank you all for for talking today.
4: Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. This us. was a great conversation. I appreciate everybody's sharing. Find us on Twitter,
1: Medium, and Facebook at Dialogue City. City. Thank you for listening to Dialogue Dialogue City. City.